the jungles of North Idaho, I'm always looking for the dark north slopes that are kind of the bedding, the escape areas, the places they're going to feel safe and secure. Pockets that maybe some guys don't hit too often or not at all. Uh, it can be something that's not very far away, just depending on the land features. Pretty much the dark, nasty pockets where they'll tend to just pull up after the first few days of the season. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I'm Sam Weaver, host of today's Tipsy Tuesday, a short segment covering rockslide.com tidbits, hunting news from across the West, with just a sprinkling of tips and tricks to keep you well informed for your next adventure. As a heads up, today's show runs a bit longer than normal, but stay tuned as it's a jam-packed show today. Well, it's finally September, and to ensure that we fully maximize this opportunity, this episode will focus on elk. We are lucky enough to be joined by Ross Russell, who has spent the last four decades chasing elk in the thick pine jungles of northern Idaho and western Montana. Ross punches tags like they're the time clock. Can't wait to hear some of his secrets. Our other guest is my good friend, Randon Timothy. Randon has been guiding elk in Utah's limited entry units for the last six years. There's tons of pressure involved with helping clients tag out after waiting decades to draw a Utah elk tag. We'll find out some of his tricks he uses while hunting the more open and arid Utah country. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you very much, Sam. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. All right. I think this is going to be a great show. Kind of have the yin and the yang here of some thick pine jungles and some wide open arid country. So we'll, we'll see uh, what the similarities and differences are kind of going forward here. You guys want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I started hunting elk in 1980 in North Idaho. Family group of hunters, all meat hunters. Didn't know what an elk even looked like. First elk I ever saw, I said, hey, Pops, is that a horse running through the would <laughs> so i hunted with the group for quite a while and then started to venture off and uh, develop my own forte of running and gunning back in the days of dwight shoe and some other guys back in the day of early elk calling and i've just maximized my opportunity since then how about you Randon? started hunting when i was about eight years old with my dad you know just out chasing spikes he was always more of an elk hunter than a deer hunter although we hunted deer too we kind of you know, elk was the big thing, you know, take a week off of school and he'd take a week off of work and we'd go camping out in the mountains. And I remember my first time, probably 10 years old, him setting me under a pine tree, him setting a little ways away from me and just waiting for these elk to feed out. And these elk fed right up to us and heard a, heard probably one of my first up close and personal bugles about 20, 30 yards away and just hit all the vibes, hit all the, the sweet spots in my body, I guess, and got me addicted ever since. So I started hunting spikes, you know, um, all throughout high school with my dad. Once I was pretty much old enough to drive, my dad was like, hey, go hunt on your own and uh, started kind of hunting any bull units learning any bull unit then you know just 
helping friends as much as I could on the limited entry units. You know, then started helping Guy Mills with Gucci's Guide Service when he was pretty big back in the day and took all the tips and tricks I could learn from him and then kind of just ventured out and learned as much as I could on my own after that. Here we are. Uh, one thing I want all the listeners to know, you know, here in Utah, you either have to get pretty lucky and draw a limited entry tag, hunt spikes, or there is a few any bull units uh, left in the state. Depending on what your definition of opportunity is, uh, Utah is pretty varied in that. Let's talk about some of our preferred terrain features that we like to hunt. What well, what are we looking for when we're actually get out into our unit? You got some ideas for us there, Ross? So in the, the jungles of North Idaho, I'm always looking for the dark north slopes that are kind of the bedding, the escape areas, the places they're going to feel safe and secure. Pockets that maybe some guys don't hit too often or not at all. Uh, it can be something that's not very far away, just depending on the land features. Pretty much the dark, nasty pockets where they'll tend to just pull up after the first few days of the season. Yeah, those are the parts I try to avoid. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm not a big elk killer. I don't, I don't know. That, that country can be hard to hunt for sure. What what about you, Brandon? Uh, I'm I'm more of a, kind of like you mentioned, a wide open mountaintop <laughs> guy. You know, I like to spend my time up where I can glass a long ways. You know, I don't archery hunt a whole lot more kind of early October, you know, rifle hunting. So I uh, try to get up high mountaintop where I can see a long ways, you know, pick elk out and kind of make a spawn stock from there. One area I do try to avoid, I know a lot of people kill elk in is cedars. I know there's elk in there and I know, uh, you know a lot of people kill them there, but man, those things are hard to hunt in there. That's just my cup of tea. I, I try to stay out of there if possible i try to avoid the cedars too i think it's just it's like the thick nasty you really got to get in there and you got to play it close i don't know that's not really my skill set i guess what do you find when you're in that ross that that really works for you i mean what are your tactics when you get up in that super thick stuff uh, when i started hunting in the 80s you didn't have too many hunters the elk were super vocal and they're still vocal at times up here well into october so most of my elk success is attributed to elk vocalization so I'm still bugling early in October, uh, cow calling, doing a lot of listening. So I'll be up well before daylight, listening primarily. Glassing up in this country doesn't benefit you too much just because of the dense nature of things. For me, it's always using my ears, uh, smell versus sight. Um, and then, of course, looking for rubs, anything that tells you they're in the vicinity or have been in the vicinity. You know, Randon, you talked about being a more visual hunter. How about for you? I mean, is that one of the... The things you're using in September too, similar to Ross's? Even when I say wide open, it's not like I'm just up in sagebrush rolling kills and stuff. I'm you know, just kind of trying to get vantage point, you know, watching for elk to feed out of pines, into into aspens and stuff like that. But yeah, obviously listening to bugles, we kind of do the same thing, you know, like we'll wake up, get out before dark, listen for some bugles. Then we have our kind of little honey hole canyons too that we're constantly watching, waiting for elk to feed through there. We you know where bulls have historically kind of pushed cows through and you know, we know there's elk in there and you know they're going to be moving along some hillsides down to some water or stuff like that that so listening for bugles and kind of just trying to watch whatever open areas you can see to see the elk moving through and then trying to make a game plan and move on them from there kind of leads to my next question which is are we finding elk in the same places i know brandon's guiding a lot of the <coughs> same units i know ross you've talked about it you're you're hunting the same areas that you've traditionally ha- hunted with your family for the last 40 years are you typically finding these elk in the, in the same places year after year consistently i mean yes and the only caveat i'll say to that is that uh, since 
since the introduction of wolves up in the area, that did change things in some drainages. Um, but some of my favorite places I could go in year in, year out, have very good success, uh, very good opportunities uh, because they were isolated areas and not many people would venture in there. So you could routinely find your elk year after year. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Join the millions of hunters who trust Onyx to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Some of the key features of Onyx are the ability to combine critical land data with on-the-ground exploration to build your perfect map and find success. All your save markups sync automatically to all devices for use in the field or from home. Onyx includes nationwide public and private land boundaries. Hunt with confidence and find new opportunities using color-coded public land maps, private parcel ownership information, and clearly marked boundaries. Mark locations crucial to your hunt with custom waypoints. Measure distances of your walk-in, shot across canyon, or distance to the nearest access point with lines. View maps in 3D and choose satellite, topo, or hybrid base maps to have the best easy-to-read visual for your hunt. Go as far from the grid as you want. No cell service required. Save detailed maps, layers, and markups for offline use. With live tracking and current location features, you'll make it out and back just like you planned. Don't risk getting turned around or lost. So if you're ready to make the jump to Onyx, use the code ROCKCAST at checkout and save yourself 20%. And I know, Brandon, when you're hunting with a client, you're looking for a particular type of bull. But when you start that search, you're, you're start traditional areas that have produced for you in the past. I mean, is that kind of your starting point? 100%. Yeah, always, always uh, hitting, I guess, kind of our little honey hole canyons where, where we know there's elk, you know. Always just waiting for the right bull to pop out. But one of my favorite things is when somebody's hunting archery or, you know, getting into the rut, starting to hunt elk, and they say, well, I've seen cows, but I didn't see any bulls, so I'm going to go over here. It's like, man, if you're seeing cows, there's going to be bulls there, you know, you just got to give them time to move in there. So, yeah, we definitely have our few spots that we focus on, and then, you know, got a few spots where we know the elk kind of get pushed to once they, they get pushed around, you know, or good water holes, good wallows that we we like to sit on and watch. Uh, had a hunter last year that loved this wallow, sat on the wallow, had a pretty good opportunity at three, 350-plus bull and just didn't work out for him. So definitely focusing on those areas and just hoping that the right guy walks out. I guess we'll kind of take a step back maybe and talk about our scouting. Even though you hunted these places a lot, Ross, are you still scouting hard before season? Yes and no. Uh, Last year, I hadn't had much success on a good bull for a while. So I was taking opportunities to get out during the time that I didn't have a tag to do quite a bit of scouting and it definitely paid off. Prior to the wolf introduction, I had things pretty nailed down. I didn't have to do much scouting Um, and with the wolf introduction and how they have become quite a pest in my area definitely I have to do more scouting before season now. How about you Brandon? I mean how does that typically work out for you as you're leading into the season? Ever since the whole trail camera ban you know that's had a huge effect on on us because usually trail cameras did a lot of scouting for us you know we'd go out one day a week or so you know and get up and check the cameras and see what's coming through there and and now yeah we have to get out depending on what season we're hunting but the hunter I'll have this year is a early rifle season so you know start hitting the hills probably this weekend and seeing where the elk are moving you know try to find some cows or whatever you know, yeah get up in glass and starting to make a little bit of noise up there so just trying to pinpoint where they are and definitely doing some scouting for people that don't know early rifle season in Utah falls pretty much uh, dead center of the rut or one of those places that you can hunt a uh, rutting elk with a rifle and that's why the tag can be pretty pretty hard to draw there so but also to go to, like with that and your scouting you know it kind of makes it super hard 
hard. As you guys both know, in September, you know, you can get a pretty good beat on a bull and he'll be five miles away the next day chasing the cow or you know, going to his favorite water hole. So I'm, I'm with Ross on that. Yeah, scouting, but also just knowing where Elkar and knowing kind of historically, I think kind of pays more dividends than, than anything else. This being September and us talking about elk, I know Ross is a huge elk caller, like you talked about. I mean, it's one of the tactics you got to use when it's super thick. What are some of your, I guess, favorite calls and, and kind of walk us through that process maybe, Ross? How, how does that all play out? Is Are you like traditional or whatever it takes? So I grew up being a, a more of a bugle guy than a cow caller. So I've always been somebody that's been the aggressive caller. I just kind of learned that was my forte back in the 80s through the 90s, the 2000s. I still use bugling as my biggest weapon, whether it's archery or rifle season. Last year, case in point, I had gone in. So Idaho's North Idaho season opens October 10th. Had a couple bulls picked out on the 8th. And so then opening day, I uh, called in a little five point, let him go. So the first day and then the second day, I went back to the spot where I had had a couple bulls in. And at nine o'clock, got a nice six point to answer. A couple hours later, engagement the whole the whole thing bugling chuckling a few cow calls and brought them into 45 yards and that was the end of the story so definitely uh bugling for me cow call second and a lot of uh, tree raking and being aggressive i always like the thought that if something's going to happen i want it to be my mistake and my outcome so if i blow it so be it but i'm going to use what's worked for me through the decades you know most people don't think about bugling elk in october but i think one of the things that you mentioned that really stood out to me is you got to have confidence when you're coming into october and they've already had all of september to pick out the imposters you know you really have to bring your a game most definitely confidence in your calls and knowing if you in fact are you know decent caller you don't have to be a great caller you don't have to be a world champion just sound realistic in everything that you do and again be confident you can do very well on that second and third esterus with your calls hunted uh western montana some also northern idaho but never for elk but when you get in that thick country one of the things i noticed a lot of times are the elk when they bugle they're going through the whole sequence but they're not very loud you have to be super close a lot of times to catch their bugle when you when you hear it i don't know for me personally and i'm not a great caller but it's hard for me to tone my my stuff down and still get the the entire sequence out definitely they and with the the wolves as well sometimes they're calls you gotta be like you just said you gotta be within a couple hundred yards to hear them sometimes other times you know depending on you know the wind and the terrain and everything you'll still hear them quite some distance being good in close is a very key item for you know the dense jungles as they say so definitely, I'm not afraid to call. People say, you talk to people and they're not confident. And they're like, yeah, you know, too many people call left and right, so you shouldn't do it. And if that's not your cup of tea, there's a lot of other options out there. Let me ask you this before we move on to Randon. But if he's calling lightly like that, are you trying to match that? Are you going over the top with something super aggressive? I mean, how are you approaching that when they're being, I guess, more secluded in their bugling? Kind of what my gut will tell me as far as if he is being what a 
appears to be pretty you know, timid in his actions, and I'm going to do the same thing, but try and get inside of that zone, whether that's the 200 yards, the 100 yards, whatever it may be, um, and just kind of go from my decades of experience to decide what's the best avenue to go with. We know that calling is never 100%, never even maybe 50% sometimes, but it definitely can do very well for you. So you just draw on your experience and, and go with it. I'm not afraid if I make a mistake, so be it. The one thing I will never try to do is let them get my win. You know, I'll do whatever it takes to keep the win in my favor. Maybe the first time doesn't work, and maybe a couple hours later, he's going again, and I'm going after him. For sure, they can see you a couple times, but they yep. smell you once, they know the gig's up. That's right. It's end of story at that point. How about for you, Brandon? I mean, are you kind of similar out there in the terrain you're hunting, or, or not really? So first, let me just throw out a quick uh, disclaimer that uh, compared to Ross, I'm, pro- I'm pretty much just a rookie. You know, I'm by, my, by no means uh, no expert in uh, in calling elk or anything like that, but obviously kind of depends on the situation, but one of my favorite tactics I use is kind of a slow play. You know, find a find a water hole, let out a cow call. You know, if you have a, a couple buddies with you, I hunt a lot with my wife. My wife's with me. She'll go her cow call, you know, and we'll both just, just start going to town on some cow calls, see if we can draw anything into it. Bugling's also kind of tough because my dad had his limited entry hunt in 2011, and one day I'd call in 15 bulls, but it seemed like every time I'd bugle all the herd bulls, you know, would run away from us. The more I learned, the more, you know, I got into elk hunting and stuff. I went more towards cow calls. Like, yeah, I do use elk bugles. I think they're pretty valuable and I can get pretty aggressive with them sometimes, but I usually try to maybe a locator bull bugle, but then I kind of lean more towards cow calls and, you know, see what I can get to answer, start coming in. Uh, one thing I really like to do is get into, you know, like if you're getting to the elk's bedding area, you know, if you can get it down to within 150, 200 yards and elk are ter- territorial for sure, you let out a bugle. That was kind of our big thing with bulls running away from us. We, we wasn't close enough to where they wanted to be and they would just run from us. But if you can get right into where they're living, right to where they're bed and then peel it out of bugle and start, you know, working them into you, that can be super fun. You can call some good bulls in that way. The Rockcast is also powered by MagView Gear. Step up your digiscoping game with the most streamlined digiscoping adapter in the industry. MagView pioneered a new era of digiscoping with its universal minimalistic spotting scope and binocular adapters. The system is designed to eliminate the frustrations and inconveniences found in traditional digiscoping systems. MagView's multifunctional system consists of three interchangeable designs, the S1 spotting scope adapter, the B1 binocular adapter, and the MagView phone plate. All MagView systems create an incredibly strong, stable digiscoping platform and only require a super thin stainless steel plate adhered to the phone to secure it to the optic. No more bulky phone cases, no more optic-specific adapters. MagView is the digiscoping choice for minimalist hunters looking for one adapter to fit most in-class optics. Many Rockslide members and staff have chosen the MagView system. You can see our in-depth review at rockslide.com and the Rockslide YouTube channel. To discover more about MagView gear, visit magviewgear.com for full specification, installation videos, and tips and tricks. Start capturing your own MagView moments today. Part of the difference is when Ross is calling, not only is he a good caller, but they can't see through that stuff. You can't see through that stuff. They can't see through that stuff. And you know, part of your glassing technique is that it is a little bit more wide open, even where it's thick. So we're having thick cover and then wide open, maybe meadows transitioning to some other stuff like aspens or something that kind of puts us at a disadvantage for calling if if the terrain isn't right either, because they can see out of their thick stuff that maybe they're bedding in into the stuff that you got to move through to get to where they are. Very well stated. 
need it. I think yeah, that sure. goes according to the area you're hunting. Mm-hmm. So definitely have to adapt the whether it's the north country, the southern country, the more arid country, more open country uh, versus the dense vegetation. Through through my time, there's been so many bulls I've had at 10 yards, you can't hardly even see them if they're in the right place for them. So they are more comfortable being more vocal in that type of setting. I was going to get to that, what our average shot distance was, but I remember hearing a story once where you shot a elk with your gun at like five yards or something. You know, to me, that just blows my mind here. (laughs) Yes, indeed. In fact, that was uh, 10 years ago, second or third day of rifle. I heard I had this bull on trail camera with like seven or eight cows about a half mile away. He bugled. I just started working my way to him. That day, I wasn't calling for some reason. And I actually stood up on a log and I could see him raking a tree on 80 yards or so through the timber. And he just started pushing the cow right to me. So I just took the safety off and waited and waited. Didn't even see him till he was at about seven yards. Uh, it was just so dense where he decided to come through right there. Yeah, that, yep. that's just crazy. <laughs> what would you say your average archery shot is in September? It's, I think, approximately 16 yards has been the average. My longest shot has only been 24. My closest one was my last bull at four and a half yards. Man, oh. I don't know if I can hold it together at four and a half yards. <laughs> Those are the ones you remember. I can still see him as he screamed at about 20. I'm not a frontal guy and he just come in and he's just looking through me, looking through me, looking through me. And then I said, turn in my mind. And he did. <laughs> and so that was the end of that one. What about for you, Randon? What do you think between you and your clients? What do you think the average shot distance is probably? Archery, uh, you know, I, man, the last two that I can think of were one was about 60 and uh, one was near 80. So the missed opportunity I told you about the hunter on the water hole last year, he was at about 45. So, so I would say probably 45 to 60 is probably about average where we're hunting. And that, that makes a lot more sense when it's more wide open there. Do you guys have any favorite calls? I mean, do you want to talk about what call that you're using, Ross? I actually started using uh, the Challenger read. Uh, Corey Jacobson made for himself three, four, five years ago. And that's been my go-to one. Um, so I have a, a handful of those that I use as well as a mixture of other ones that I'll throw in. If, if something's not working that day, as we know, no elk calls 100%. So I'll definitely go through the reads, see if just a little variation will help me out. But that's that's been my go-to the last few years. Oh, what you're going to replace that with? Yeah, well, when I heard what happened, I went out and bought a whole bunch of <laughs> I'm prepared for at least three to five years, I Expect. That's good plan. And when you know what works, you get better get it. <laughs> That's exactly right. What about you, Brandon? Do you got a favorite? I use the uh, Rocky Mountain hunting calls, that little external reed in the mouthpiece. That's what I do my bugling with. And then I have a couple reeds, also Rocky Mountain reeds, you know, that all uh, I can do some growls with or some stuff like that and make some cow sound. Or I just kind of use the Rocky Mountain regular cow call. I can't think what it's called off the top of my head. but Yeah, something sleazy mama or something. Yeah, I have that call too. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I actually, I like Rocky Mountain too. I don't know. You know, calls are like boots. They either fit you or they don't. And when you find ones you like, like Ross did, you better be stocking up because no doubt they're going to change the stretch of the latex or something ridiculous after like two years of you really being successful with it. So just something to be aware of. Do you find that your bugle tube makes a difference, Ross? I always I always wondered this question. Like I said, I'm not a great caller, so I think it makes a difference necessarily to me. Yeah, so going back when I was first starting out, you know, everybody started out with the vacuum tube hoses and different things. 
then you'd add a little belt to it and you'd make your own and your buddies would come up with something with different duct tape or whatever it was so everybody's always playing with their, their grunt tubes and no different than today they're trying to come up with something that'll entice you or maybe looks a little different i think just a quality tube that does have a bell on it, i think the bell adds some vibrance and realistic nature to it outside of that i don't think there's a lot of variation between the better grunt tubes in today's world yeah i try to carry the biggest one just so it's obnoxious and i know where it always is <laughs> um if you were only gonna have let's say one week or maybe i know that blasphemy maybe one day what's your favorite day of september what what is your go-to day you think september 20th though being i'm a rifle hunter right now i, th I like october 10th or 11th which is the first two days of the season first right? two days of the season exactly yeah yep. we find it kind of funny but me and randon were talking about this just today when we were trying to decide what we we're going to talk about on this podcast and i was like yeah september 20th give it to me every every time september 20th if you can get one day either side of that you're going to be in the money typically golden yes you pick the right location that should be good what what about you randon i'm more of a kind of later september guy like around the 25th 26 i like that week maybe because i spend a little bit more time you know in southern utah where it can be a little bit warmer and it feels like things are finally starting to cool down you know that last week and little little less pressure maybe maybe on the elk and they're kind of starting to talk a little bit more and you know starting to get heated up but yeah i'm more of a by september 25th guy i agree with you in a lot of it i think they make a lot more noise the later in the month that you go but i know for me maybe they don't come around the 20th they're they're gathering their cows up and whatnot and sorting it out i feel like in later in the month they've already kind Kind of sorted their dominance and and they're not coming to me but like i said i'm not a great caller yeah that's actually a good point but yeah you, you might hear a lot more bugles but you're probably calling them less in that's part of the gamble i guess i think when you're looking for a certain bull the more bugles you're hearing the more places you know to look for that bull you know different strokes for different folks i guess depending on what your goal is there let's see do you got any glassing tips maybe for us in this open country i just told you the story about deer hunting on the limited entry unit a couple weeks ago and you know everybody's sitting kind of on the one knob glass and facing the one direction and I turned around and glassed the other direction just because I didn't like all the competition out there and actually glassed up a pretty decent buck that we killed. I mean, I know we're here talking about elk, but a lot of the spots I glass here, I kind of have to myself, but there are those times you'll pull up to a ridge and there might be somebody there. But I'll say this, if you're hunting limited entry, public land, I don't know how a lot of people feel about it, but you know, if it's the glassing spot you're going to and there might be somebody else there, go there anyway. Get get different angles. That's probably my biggest glassing tip. Just different angles, you know, know what you're looking for. The more people, obviously, the better to a point just hit those spots kind of good vantage points and keep your eyes out i guess patience 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 because you know elk have all the time in the world and sometimes we as humans feel like we don't and we gotta rush from one spot to the next spot to the next spot so just take your time man glass as much as you can i'm a big glasser of course we're hunting the same kind of country um you know i'm all about saving some step i will say this uh, when i hunt hunted in north idaho and i've mentioned it before but not only is that country steep but it can be open on your side and you can't see through the trees <laughs> to see the actual ground on the other side or you could be on that side there'll be a clearing on the other side and you can't see through the trees enough to see into the clearing on the other side not too many glassing tips i don't think from ross can you think of any offhand or, or uh, not really just to look you know not for the animal per se just look for the individual body parts whether it's the glint of an antler you know an ear flickering with a fly the tail moving you know and then look for your little shaded spots maybe where something may be bedded and just patience um that's the 
key with glasses. You got to take your time. Today's world, everything's about speed. Well, the elk and the deer, they're not about speed. They're about survival. <laughs> and so you never know when they're going to step out or just give you something that may give them away. And I know from hunting that country, when you finally do find a spot that you can see, you know, that's a very valuable, you know, you definitely want to mark that on your Onyx to come back to at a later date for sure. Yes, indeed. Yep. Those little, I've had a lot of success up here in little spots where you have a little window where you may have an opportunity at something. You definitely file it away for future reference. All right. We're running kind of long here. You guys got any favorite uh, mountain pick-me-ups, a favorite snack that, you know, you you take with you every time or you look forward to when it's in your backpack? Snickers, double size, <laughs> chocolate and nuts. That's my go-to. Yeah, I love me I love me a Snickers. I don't know why we don't hunt together, Ross. <laughs> on the 20th, we'll have a Snickers. Sounds good to me. What about you, Randy? This is probably one of my favorite questions on the on this little segment. Um, pick me up is probably my uh, my warrior feel elevate. I don't know what it is. It just seems like that kind of gets me going, gets me hiking, pushing a little harder and further. I mean, you are going to both, let's see what's over the next hill kind of guys. Some snack I I'm, I'm uh, with you guys. Have to say Snickers, but I like the fun size ones. So you got you got to have two. You can't just have Snickers. You know, you can't just have chocolate. You got to have something a little sour and a little, a little something else to get going. So Snickers and Gushers are the two things I go with. I don't know where I've been under a rock somewhere, but I discovered Gushers this year too. Yeah, I'm a big Gushers guy now. I had to buy I had to buy some for this uh, upcoming hunts I got going on. Well, I don't want to feel left worried. out. Enlighten me. What is a gusher? <laughs> a gusher is basically a fruit snack that has fruit juice in it. So when you bite into it, it releases like a little drop of whatever the flavor of the fruit snack is. Oh, all right. Well, we'll have to check that out. You got to get the tropical ones. The tropical ones. All right. I think we've had a pretty informative podcast here. Anything you guys want to close out on, Ross? Uh, I'll just say don't miss any season. So I'm on the downhill side of the mountain and definitely enjoy every season that you're out because before you know it you're getting close to 50 years in the woods and you're gonna miss it if you don't do it so if you can do it don't put it off and definitely get out there and have fun let me, let me ask you this because you were talking maybe about your long-haired whiskers you got <laughs> Does it change your aggressiveness? I know you said you'd like to be more aggressive, but have you felt like you've tapered off with age maybe, or you've just gotten smarter and you feel like you use that aggressiveness at the appropriate time more often? I would say the aggressive aspect has not changed, but I have to be wiser to not use maybe some energy I will need the next day, the third day, if I don't feel the opportunity is really there. Um, so I have been known to go too far, too much in one day, and now that definitely can be a detriment at this age so definitely just have to think a little more about dropping into that pocket if i don't feel you know the opportunity is there that day maybe it's better the next day but if a bull's talking i'm going <laughs> there's no doubt i noticed that too i've always been a kill it and figure it out kind of guy yep and i think you know every every candle on that birthday cake makes me maybe starts to get that in the back of my mind maybe where am i and and how am i gonna do this i remember once when i was a kid and i was hunting with my dad we were looking off down into this thing and he was like i don't even know why you're looking down there and i saw elk and he was like i'm gonna tell you right now don't kill that 
something. Don't kill. I said, I got to kill. He said, I know, but don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) And I did it. And yeah, he was, he wasn't too impressed, but we got it up to the truck, but he made me do most of the work. And he was like, yeah, that's why we don't look down there, guy. (laughs) But you remember it fondly, don't you? Yeah, I don't. I tell my kids too, don't even look out the window. We'll just keep on driving. (laughs) But how about you, Randon? Anything you want to close out on? Uh, I say be persistent and keep grinding, go a little further. If you're in elk, focus on that. You're in elk, the, there's going to be more elk coming in, you know, getting into the important part. And also, you know, don't let, don't change your plan based off of what you think other people are doing. I've done that too many times, you know, see a truck or, you know, see a hunter somewhere else and think, well, well they're going to go do this and I'm going to, you know, now I got to switch it up and I got to go here. Stick to your plan, stick to your guns, keep grinding. And the last thing I want to close on really is if you're in a spot and you're not seeing elk and you're not seeing elk sign, hike back down, get in your truck and drive somewhere else. You can waste a lot of time hunting where elk aren't. You want to spend that time hunting where elk are. Keep that in mind. Yes, exactly. Well stated. And we also, if you've had success someplace, you know, several times, so you expect, hey, I'm going to go back to this place and kill another one, or I know this place and I've learned it. But if you go there and you give it a good effort and the elk just aren't there, then move on to someplace else. Maybe come back the next year. Maybe come back in a few weeks. But definitely, if the elk aren't there, you can't kill them. All right, guys. I appreciate you both coming on, taking some time out of your day, and and sharing with our listeners some of your success and some of your tip. I hope you both have a great season, and uh, we'll catch up with you next time. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. You have a good season as well. Moving on to other exciting Rockcast news. Robbie Denning is scheduled to release his newest podcast this week. Tune in for a front row seat as the Nevada Mule Deer Summit wraps up in Winnemucca. The summit was attended by wildlife professionals from across the West, predominant mule deer hunters, along with other members of the public. Robbie has the latest report from Winnemucca. And if you love mule deer, it's an episode you don't want to miss. Did you listen to last week's End of Hunting podcast? If hunting is important to you, give it a listen to find out some of the challenges hunting faces as demographic across the West continue to change with the influx of new residents. Moving on to rockslide.com gear reviews. You can check out this review and more on the homepage at rokslide.com. All right, guys. Today, we're going to welcome Josh Boyd. He's done about a dozen shelter reviews and today he's here to talk about his newest one welcome to the show josh hey thanks for having me be fun to kind of chat a little bit about this shelter well i used this peak solitude 4 teepee this spring in quite a few different scenarios different conditions in the mountains and in the valleys up here in northern idaho northwest montana um so yeah, I, I got to use this thing in a variety of conditions, some cold, some windy, some really wet stuff. And then actually we had a pretty hot spring, so I got to use it in some, some heat as well. So I got to test it in a variety of conditions. Yeah, it sounds like you put it through the paces there. Uh, why don't you give us kind of some of the specs of this thing for our listeners that aren't really familiar with the uh, Peak Solitude? Well, it is a four-person design. And when they say four-person, that really means you can fit four people in there, and that's about it. You could also fit two people in there with lots of gear and a stove, no problem. You could fit three people with gear without a stove. Just that people want the people that want the numbers, the the square footage of the footprint is about 94 square feet. So there's a lot of elbow room in there. And it's fairly tall at 80 inches. Man, it comes in at like, mm, the shelter I think is like 3.3 or 
something like that with the additional footprint adding a little less than a pound so like all all total i think it was a little over four pounds for the full shelter and that's like guy outlines stake the carbon fiber center pole did i say floor and the shelter so yeah it's the whole the whole system's a little over four pounds which is pretty decent for a shelter this size right that's a lot of square footage for four pounds for sure yeah it's kind of shaped more like an ellipse versus like a square or a diamond so that's a little bit different than a lot of these other floorless shelters that i've tested but that pitch is kind of in the same fashion you know you you pin the four corners out and then kind of tension it from there right so pretty easy to pitch it is it's one of the cool features of this tent is if you do end up with the floor, which I highly recommend people do by the floor, you can actually stake the floor out first, adjust it to where you want it to be, and then you can just throw the shelter over the top and clip it into the floor. So it kind of gives you like a preview of where you're going to be laying without pitching the shelter. Because there's a lot of times I'll pitch a shelter and I'm like, ah, I'm a little bit off and this bush is in the way and now I got to adjust it and slide it and shimmy it. So yeah, having the floor pitched first and then clipping the shelter on top of it worked really well. Um, so that's a pretty neat feature I've been pretty enamored with at this shelter. Yeah, that's happened to me many times using my shelter. You get into just trying to find a footprint that's big enough for 94 square feet, right? Like, I mean, that's a big footprint. So Yeah, so yeah it seems like when you start staking out a corner, you're like, oh, this is going to fit just fine. And next thing you know, you have it all stretched out. Like, ah, oh, this little alpine fur is in the way or this huckleberry bush, there's alders in the way. And, and you got to slide it over. And then also you can kind of like lay down on the floor and see if you're actually in a level spot kind of adjust where you're actually going to sleep. Pretty handy in that regard. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, just, I just since we're on the floor a little bit, I've gotten a lot of questions. There's been a lot of comments on the forums about the floor itself. And it's, it's a semi-bathtub floor, so it kind of wraps on both sides. So on the long side of the shelter, the which are on the opposite side of the doors, it kind of has a, a small bathtub wall. But the, the floor ends that face the doors are flat and they lie flush with the ground so it kind of gives you a little bit of wind protection and moisture protection that blows it if anything blows in from the side but the the facing the door ends are all flat so it's kind of got this weird shape but i just thought i'd throw that out there because there's a lot of questions that have been coming out about the actual shape of the floor there's two doors yeah so yeah there's two doors they're not your traditional like straight zippered door they've got an arc to them they kind of you know you can open them up in an arc you know there's some some discussion on peak's website of why they did that it eliminates the stress on some of the seams and whatnot but uh, they're just kind of nice to just to have that big open wide circular you know, door you could crawl in and out. And it's nice to have some ventilation with those kind of doors, those big wide holes. Yeah, they let a lot of air through, but I also notice on my single zipper sometimes when it's super rainy and you touch the material, you end up getting a lot of it on you as you're trying to get inside the shelter. And then you're all wet trying to get in on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so the other thing about the floor in the shelter is it has a little zippered panel that you can unzip and roll back to where the, the center pole is. And that just gives you a little open ground space to put a wood-fired stove in there, if you so desired, and still have that floor, which is kind of nice. Um, there's a lot of people have been asking about that. Can you run the floor and run a, a wood stove in there at the same time? And the answer is yes, you can. There's two green zippers. You just 
unzip them, roll them back, and you're good to go. But you just have to make sure you orient the teepee stove jack over the top of that zippered panel on the floor. They have to, to match up. Right. You got to pre-plan where you want your stove at yep. and where you put your shelter so they combine. Another kind of unique feature that I've, I really liked in this teepee setup versus some other ones that I've used is it has these cross members that you can add trekking poles to. It has like these little pockets that you can stick trekking poles in an X up towards the, the dome of the tent to give it really kind of more structural rigidity up high. And it also, so for snow loading and heavier winds, it kind of helps brace the that the tip of the shelter. And they also add a really nice place to hang stuff inside to dry and air out if you do use a stove. So there's a lot of other shelters I've used that don't have any places to like, you have to kind of string like a clothesline up in the upper end of your teepee. This, you don't have to do that if you want to put some some trekking poles up there and um, add that extra stability. I think that's super great design, especially if you got multiple people in there just trying to find enough space to get two sets of something hung up to get dried out for the morning. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, the one drawback is if your trekking poles are in there adding rigidity to your tent, you're not using a trekking pole when you're out hunting for the day. So there, that is one of the drawbacks. But if you're, you have two people, you can each throw one in there and each carry one in your pack too. So there's ways around it. That's just one of the drawbacks to it. But I think the option to add them is spectacular. And I'm glad that feature exists. It's one of those things that you don't need all the time, but when you do need it, you need it. Agreed totally. Yeah. So it's like setting this thing up is super easy. Um, like I said, I, I really prefer to pitch and most people will want to do the same thing, pitch the floor and then just start clipping your shelter to that. The center pole is, uh, it's lightweight, it's carbon fiber, it's got markings on the bottom so you kind of know where you're where you probably should be if the ground's level and it's typically about 80 inches it's on that 80 inch mark so from the ground to the, the tip of the inside of the cone of the teepee is 80 inches but it has plenty of adjustment in case you're in uneven ground and you need a little less or a little more pole oh i was gonna ask you what kind of materials it made out of it is a still nylon so it's a 20D sill. There's a proprietary coating on there, which is supposed to be like a long lasting waterproof coating. I'm not 100% sure what it is, but it is very waterproof and it does it does repel rain and snow quite well. But yeah, so it's a 20D sill nylon. It, I didn't find that it stretched a whole lot when it got moist, like a lot of sills do, but it did some, but that's just inherent in this type of fabric. You're going to see that no matter what. Some have a little more stretch than others. This one seemed to have minimal stretch, but it has some pretty nice tensioning loops at the base to tighten things up when things do get moist and you get a little bit more sag in the fabric. So it's easily adjustable to get that that sag out of the fabric when it does get wet. Plenty of guy outs. Lots 20 of 20D is pretty heavy duty seal. That should have plenty of durability there. Kind of surprising that it all comes together still at the four pound range there. Yeah, it's, it is impressive. Um, like you said, there's lots of guy outs and they're all reinforced. There's lots of stake out point and they're all reinforced with some X-Pack material. It's kind of, it looks like it's maybe glued and sewn on there. Anyway, it's definitely where they're attached. They are very durable. I haven't seen any thing to overstress any of the, the attachment point. Yeah, I was going to make a mention of the guy outs on the side. They have a pretty unique kind of like this floating cable system where there's three guy outs that kind of have one piece of string or one piece of uh, 
cord through all three of them and then you can bring them together and pull them out and use one stake. And so it kind of evenly tensions all three of those at one point, which is really nice. It's a pretty neat feature. I've not seen that in any other shelters like this and lots of stakeout points. So you can, you can really get that thing sucked in tight to the ground if you want. I think it's super important, especially when you're in a windy conditions, you know, when the only thing that holds your tent in place is the stakes and you want to make sure that it's not going anywhere. You're not getting up every hour to make sure you got a rock and pounding them back down. That's, that makes for a long night. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. And you know, the stakes that it comes with, I was impressed. They were high quality and really durable. I beat on a lot of them with a rock and a lot of times I'll fold some over, not these in particular, but other stakes in general. I tend to break the tips off or, or just bend the whole stake. These were like high quality stakes. And I was impressed that they came with this tent. A lot of times that's thick. A lot of manufacturers will cheap out on the stakes they send. These were pretty, pretty high quality and really durable. Sounds like it has a lot of uh, innovation that we haven't maybe seen in some of these other floorless shelters. Yes. Yeah. It seems like there was quite a bit of R&D that went into this. The production version seems to be well thought out and pretty refined. I'm surprised that they so many features that work pretty flawlessly up to this point. As the season progresses, you'll be using this. I know you're testing a few other shelters throughout, but you'll continue to use this and uh, be reporting back on the review thread? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I plan on using this as soon as it turns really nasty for the season. I've got some other really lightweight shelters that I'm using currently at the moment, but this one will be in my pack for probably more like mid to late rifle season. So talking late October into November when the snow starts piling up in the high country and I want to break out a stove to use with it. Yeah, I'll definitely add some more hours and days to this thing for some long-term durability. And of course, I'll keep people updated as I use it on the thread on Rockslide. And so people can ask me questions and see how it's progressing and how much use it's actually getting. And if there are any failures at, at some point. Yeah. And I'll link the thread on the podcast show notes here and they can reach out to you there. Where else can they find you at there, Josh? You know, the only place you can find me is on Instagram. Got a handle, which is, yeah, Josh underscore mt follow me and ask me questions they can find me there but you can hit me up on the rock slide forums too i'm you know i'm in and out of there fairly often all right and if people are listening to this on tipsy tuesday know that peaks is giving away one of these solitude tps to one of the members on rock slide what do you got to do there josh well there's a thread on rock slide in the shelter forum um click on that uh, read the instructions. It's tip. It's basically read my review, check it out, look at the features, go to Peak's website, check it out, and then come back to the thread and make a comment on what's your favorite feature or most intriguing feature of the tent, or ask a question and Peaks will jump on and answer it. And then that's all you need to do. You get entered automatically entered to win a full shelter giveaway, which is the shelter, the carbon pole, stakes, and then the footprint. Pretty generous giveaway from Peaks. Uh, this thing sounds pretty awesome. I wish I could get entered myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a great shelter. A lot of people will be happy to, to pick one up. And if, you know, if people are interested in the floorless or semi-floorless, you can, yeah, it's it's a good a good one to, to jump in and grab. All right. Glowing review from Josh Boyd. Anything else you want to close out with? It's a great shelter. And yeah, I hope people check it out. Sounds awesome. Thanks for coming on. Moving on to the news. The BLM has released the Wyoming Rock Springs Resource Management Plan for public comment. Some of the biggest and best big game units winner on this BLM ground. Now is the time to make your voices heard. Get involved. Closing out on some crazy news coming out of Montana. 
Three women were attacked by otters while tubing down the Jefferson River. All three recount that the attack was vicious and relentless by the otters. One woman had to be medevac to the nearest hospital. Yet another reminder to stay safe out there. Until next time, this has been Sam Weaver. <laughs>